You know, like certain songs, like Stay With You. I remember the first time I sang that song in worship, I was here, I was sitting right by that post over there, like eight years ago, we were thinking about where the night God was calling us here, and we're going to pull up our family from Florida and bring our one-year-old here and stuff. And that song has special meaning for me because I remember the time that I first sung that song in worship. I don't know. Thanks for that trip down memory lane. Why don't you grab a Bible? Uh, page 912. You want to open up with me? You can find Acts chapter 4 there. Again, that's page 912. And wherever you're sitting, there's a Bible within arm's reach. Grab your phone if you need that. I was thinking about um, this text. It's very interesting to me that in the book of Acts, we have a lot of narrative. We've got a handful of miracles. We've got a couple of sermons. But even more rare in the book of Acts is what we find here today. Prayers of the first Christians. I bet if we took a look at the list of things you've prayed for in the last year, we could tell something about what's important to you. I like, imagine if God had a running log, and if he returned that list back to you and said, uh, these are the things we find pulling up over and over and over, what would that say about what's important to you? Maybe you find yourself praying for comfort more than other things, or for courage more than other things. It's the same thing with this prayer in Acts chapter 4. We can find something about what was important to them by the things that they prayed for. And so here's what I'd like to do over the next few minutes. So look at two parts of this one prayer to learn something about what was important to them because we're returning not simply to the book of Acts out of intellectual curiosity. I wonder what they prayed for, but because for us here at Our Father, this is a present reality for us, asking what do we need to return to on this side of history, on this side in the story of our Father Lutheran Church? What can we learn to? What can you return to? What can you learn from, from the things that were important to them based on the things that they prayed for? Two things. Let's start with the first thing. Acts chapter 4, verse 28. Let's start reading. It says this. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. All right, let's pause right there. What did they say to them? If you remember, I mentioned this right before our first reading, that, that John and Peter healed a crippled man. They were arrested for doing that and for preaching in the name of Jesus. They're held overnight. Meanwhile, all the leaders of the church get together and say, what are we going to do about this? this isn't it a good thing? We should stop them. They decide to release them, and they warn them sternly, you know, with threats, don't ever do anything like that again, which apparently doesn't work uh, if you're a chief priest or if you're a parent, I've discovered. <laughs> so that's what they said to them. Then their prayer begins, verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Let's pause right there. He's going to go on to quote Psalm 2. There's that, see that quotation there? That's, if it's indented there, maybe in your Bible. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Easy to take that look or that list for granted. Uh, we're going to say in just a few minutes, we're going to confess our faith in the Nicene Creed, and we're going to say, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I mean, as Christians today, 
Read this list. Sovereign Lord who made the earth and the heaven and the sea and everything easy to take for granted. What do we find here? By the very words, we find them submitting to the sovereignty of God. And to submit means to let go of control. To submit to the sovereignty of God it means to submit to the wisdom of God and the power of God, what he knows and what he can do. It's to say, God, you know more than I know. And I guess that's a good thing. Even when that's a hard thing. And you can do more than I can do. Which is a far better thing than if I were in control over the events of my life. I guess you know, and I guess you can do far more than I know and far more than I can do. To submit is to say, Lord, I trust your sovereignty even when I can't see what you're up to. Verse 27, they say this, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel. Now, again, easy to take these words for granted too. If you're around a church during the season of Lent, right before Easter, we read the story of the trial and after the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus every year. But, but if you're one of the first Christians, these are the most powerful forces on the face of the earth. These are the religious elite, their leaders, govern their daily life. Herod and Pontius Pilate, the nation of Rome. What do they say about them? What do they believe about them? Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. I love that. Whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What does this tell us about the first Christians? That they had this sense that the most powerful forces on the face of the earth were just pawns in the hand of the sovereign God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. Let's pull over. What does that mean for you and for me? It means that nothing can get in the way of God's unstoppable plan for your life. And that all the things that seem like they are stacked up against you, just like they were for the Lord's anointed, Jesus, all of the things that, they, that seem like they're stacked up against you, that God can use all of those things for you. Pawns in his hand, according to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The sovereignty of God. That'll change the way that you pray too. Look back at verse 24. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. What are they doing? Doesn't God know already that he's the sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them? I mean, are they trying to distinguish God from a different... God knows, right? Of course. 
I would argue that they're not repeating those things back to God for his sake. They're repeating those things out loud for their sake. To say out loud the words of God about the work of God. To work the truth of these things down deep into their hearts. I mean, you can pray that way too. To say, Lord, this is the day that you've made. And I don't deserve how good you are to me, but I know that this is your day, and so I'll receive all that you give me today. And to say, Lord, I've wandered far outside your design for my life. And I found my worth, my satisfaction in other things besides you. I've lived my own way, and I'm sorry. And, and your scriptures say that your mercies are new every morning. So that means that today is a brand new start. And if Romans 28, 8 verse 28 is true, that you can work all things together for good, that means that if I'm not sure what you're up to, and if I can't see what you're doing in my life, I'm sure that that promise is true, even if I can't see the results of those words and that promise. And, uh, and all the things that seem like they're against me, Lord, you can use all of those things for me in a way I can't fully understand. To work the words of God and the work of God, to work them down into your heart. Submission. That's the first thing that we find here. But, but maybe, just about that, before we move on, somebody says, well, submission, that's not something I'm up for because of the prevailing narrative in our culture for a very long time, but most recently it's come to the surface, has been this story, that any form of religion that limits the way that you live is always oppressive. And what we need to do instead is to be our truest selves, to express who we really are on the inside, and no matter what that may cost the people around us, in order to be who we really are, that's freedom. Throwing off the shackles of, of religion and laws and rules and being our truest selves. We call that irreligion. Maybe, though, there's another story that, that you've heard, a story under the surface that goes like this. What you need to do is to suppress your longings and your desires. You need to submit them to the will and the law and the words of God. And instead... Be who he says you should be. And if you do that, if you obey him, if you submit to him, he'll bless you and reward you because that's what you ought to be doing. We have a word for that. We don't call that irreligion. We call that religion. And what Christianity is, is it's neither one of those things. It's something else entirely. In just a moment, I'd like to show you a very short video clip based on a study that was made by architects. We're going to watch this in church. Uh, about playgrounds is the subject of this. And kids, and the effect of playgrounds on kids. Let's take a look at that now. playground study. A simple study was conducted to discover the effects of a fence around a playground and the consequent impact it would have on preschool children. Teachers were to take their children to a local playground in which there was no fence during their normal recess hour. 
the kids were to play as normal. The same group was to be taken to a comparable playground in which there was a defined border designated by a fence. In the first scenario, the children remained huddled around their teacher, fearful of leaving out of her sight. They did not use the full playground space. The later scenario exhibited drastically different results, with the children feeling free to explore within the given boundaries. The overwhelming conclusion was that with a given limitation, children felt safer to explore the playground. Without the fence, the children were not able to see a given boundary or limit, and thus were more reluctant to leave their caregiver. With a boundary, in this case, a fence, the children felt at ease to explore the space. The fence is a visible reminder that they are safe from objects of harm, such as stray dogs, cars, strangers, and the unknown. As long as they remain in that secure environment, they were able to separate from the caregiver and continue to develop in their sense of self, while still recognizing that they were in a safe environment within the limits of the fence. Tuesdays at 8, check them out. What are we talking about playgrounds for in the middle of a sermon on a Sunday at church? It's because you were born for boundaries. And maybe your view of Christianity has been for a while that it's full of rules and legalism and religion. But Christianity says you have a propensity to wander. Not simply to break a list of rules or commandments. If anything, they show us you know, how far we've crossed the boundary of what God's good design is for our lives. What Christianity tells us is that sin at its core is finding our worth and our satisfaction and our meaning in our wandering in all sorts of other things besides God himself. You were born for boundaries because you are prone and I am prone to wander. And you're at your best. The best version of you. You flourish within the good design of the one who created the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Submission is a good thing, I would argue. It's the first thing that we find here in Acts chapter 4, but it's not the only thing we find here. I hope you still have your Bible. We're going to keep reading in verse 29. So the, the, the story kind of flips here, the prayer transitions, and it says, verse 29, and now. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with, everybody together, boldness. Why? I mean, they're praying now not the way that I would pray if I was there around the dinner table with Peter and John and the other disciples that night. And for me, I'd be saying, hey, things like 
don't look very good for us right now. What if we did this? I've got an idea. Let's just dial back, let things cool off for a little bit, hang back, and when things blow by, then we can do a little more and get out there again. That's not what we find here. We don't find them praying for comfort. We don't find them praying for safety. We don't find them praying for relief from their circumstances. We find them praying for boldness, the very thing that will bring anything but comfort and anything but relief. We are one chapter away from where we'll be next week. Uh, Acts chapter 5, Pastor Abel's preaching about the next group of disciples that are arrested. We're three chapters away from chapter 7, where we'll meet the first martyr of the Christian church, Stephen. Why would they pray for this dangerous thing? Why would they pray for boldness. It's at least in part because they know that the sovereign Lord of creation who made heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it is the one who is controlled and predestined by his plan and by his hand every event that he's ordered in their life. And so they can't screw it up no matter how bad they do and no matter how far they wander that they can't ever screw up God's plan for their life. It made them bold. It made them strong. And that can change the way that you pray too. So uh, at our other services, we have this sort of tradition that we've developed of reading out loud the names of people who have asked us to pray for them. So it's their first name. And I was talking to somebody who's on that list every week, about a week ago, and she uh, told us the backstory of the day she found out that she was diagnosed with a terminal cancer in her brain that's of the most aggressive kind. She's lived a year since that diagnosis, which is about as long as people are expected to live. And she's not sure how many more days or months she has left. And uh, Pastor Micah and I asked her, well, how is that for you? The podcast that we're recording, and you'll hear about that in about a week, we'll release that episode. And she said, it brings me so much comfort knowing that when I hear my name read out loud, that together we're banging on the doorstep, door of the throne of heaven. She's praying for a miracle that God may or may not give her. She knows her days are numbered and then every conversation that she has with her four grandkids, that every single one matters and that, that the moments that she has to spend time with her husband, just to call him uh, over to the couch and to show him the game that she's playing on her phone. She's never played games before on my phone, but it's this small moment that they get together that they didn't have before, that every single one of those counts in a way they didn't count or matter before because they're numbered. And she knows that when she's in this, we're in this with her. Boldness. Why did they pray that way? At least in part. Because they knew of the sovereignty of God. They trusted his plan in his hand, what he had predestined to take place. That'll change the way that you can pray with boldness too. But that's not the only reason. Because here's the scary thing about praying thy kingdom come. And thy will be done is that it may 
put your comfort and your success, and at least in your eyes, in jeopardy. That it may cost you something too. Look what it cost them. It's a dangerous prayer to pray, but that, my friends, to put it on the, on the line, to take your hands off your life and to give control to the sovereignty of God, you know what that is? That's the way of the cross. That's the way of the Lord's anointed. Where do we find him the night before his crucifixion? On his knees in the garden of Gethsemane, saying to the Father, I, and in knowing full well in his sovereign knowledge what would take place. Saying, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. We find him the next night on the cross. The Lord's anointed Jesus Christ letting go of his life, setting aside his control, becoming weak, setting aside his power, becoming weak unto death. Why is he doing that? Not for his sake, but for your sake. He's not asking you to do anything that he has already done in full to a great and more magnificent degree that he has already done for you. We find on the cross Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the favored one, the only son of God the Father, losing the favor of the Father, becoming rejected and forsaken for your sake so that you can be pursued and embraced and belong to a God who says, no matter how far you wander, you always belong to me. And that'll make you humble. And it'll make you bold. Because you have a God who went to that great degree, that length, simply so that you could be his. He didn't have to do that, but he did that. He was glad to do that. And that'll make you bold because, because you always belong to the sovereign Lord of creation who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them and made you and is designed for your life a plan that you can never screw up. So pray with boldness and pray, Lord, I submit to you. Let me tell you a story and the two things I learned after it happened before we close. So uh, our son Adam, who's nine, has a friend in his class. Last year he was in second grade. And he came home one day with a sticky note with the contact information of this friend's parents and asked if we could get the boys together and play. So they hung out at each other's houses a couple of times, was texting the dad, and I got to know the dad, especially after uh, the two of us found ourselves sitting across the table from one another last spring at this um, interview for a new principal at Adam's school. We were a couple of parents who were selected to be with a couple of faculty members. I think I've told you part of that story before. And so... We're walking out after the last day, the dad and I, and I said, hey, you're cool. I'm cool. We should get a beer sometime. You know, not quite in that voice, but it was much, it was much more cool. <laughs> but not really that much. And uh, he said, sure, that sounds great. Let's do that. I, I would really like to do that. And I know enough about this guy through the kids that he has a very different worldview than I have. We look at the same things in very different ways. Grew up in a Christian home, no longer a Christian, though the rest of his family still is. And he's had some sort of difficulty over time. His life isn't the way that he would write it if he were writing his own story right now. And so we go to Pro's Brewing Company over the summer, and then 
Uh, school year starts, and Adam signs up. He gets the last spot available in the chess club after the deadline had passed. He's a really social guy. I'm not sure if he likes chess or just the chance to hang out with his buddies. I don't know. So, uh, turns out, this buddy of his is in the chess club, too. Find out when he comes home. And a couple of our neighbor kids are. And so I reached out to the dad and said, hey, it sounds like our kids are in chess club together. Why don't you come over and hang out on the patio and we can have a couple of IPAs before we have to pick up the kids from chess club? He says, that sounds great. I'm pulling out of the driveway that morning before it starts. And uh, I see another one of our neighbors. I know that their kids might have played soccer together. And I said, hey, do you know this dad? Uh, he's, you know, had just happened to be in the driveway at that moment, just happened to know the, the dad who I know. He said, yeah. I, I said, he's coming over today. Your kid's in chess club. You want to come over too? He said, sure, I'd love to. Apparently, I'm pretty cool, you know. <laughs> Not really. Okay, so, so the dad of the friend, of Adam's friend, shows up first. This is last Thursday. And we have a great conversation about a lot of things that I don't think he's shared with a lot of people. And I remember saying at one point, you know, I'm really glad that I'm a Christian because as a Christian, in the circumstance that we were talking about, I'm glad that I have a God who loves me and forgives me and is always in it with me. And he said to me, you know, I'm not sure if that's true for me. I said, you know, I'm not sure this is the right time to talk about that because I saw the neighbor coming across the street. I said, but I would love to talk to you about this some more because I think he's coming over. He said, I'd really like to talk about that too. So uh, we hang out. The three of us, we draw straws for which kid is, or which dad is going to have to drive over to school and pick up the kids from chess club. And uh, here's the text that I sent to the guys on Friday afternoon. I said, gentlemen, we owe it to ourselves to take advantage of the weather while we can, as well as an hour of after-school babysitting. Chess club, that's the name of ourselves now, uh, on the patio on Thursday next week. First one writes in, I'm in, that sounds great. See you around 2.45. Sure, that works. You, you, for that matter, you can come over too, if you want to. We're not exclusive. Here's what I realized. Two things. Number one, and I'll close. That it's no accident that God has brought this guy into my life. And I didn't have to lift a finger to do that. You literally brought him into my life. His plan, his hand, not my plan or my hand. I wouldn't have normally been friends with this guy had God not brought him into my life. He's the, he's the Lord of heaven and earth and the sea and everything in it and every street in my subdivision too. My neighborhood, my patio. So you can pray for us when we hang out again. Thursday at 2.45. That's the second thing. You can pray with boldness. And realize that later too that I can begin to pray now for, for boldness the next time we're together. Even if I may not feel that, even if I may not have that, that the sovereign Lord of creation has designed a moment for me to spend time with someone who seems far from him, and through me, God is pursuing and chasing this person who is wandering far away. Wow. Submission and boldness. The two things that we find here in Acts chapter 4. Amen.